And I'd like to go to uh, the topic and importance of studying God's revealed will and properly interpreting it, meditating on it, uh, prayerfully so. This is uh, probably the text... And, you know, you're coming from solid churches that are preaching and teaching the Word of God faithfully, but it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy, a well-known verse uh, that most all of you have even memorized, is where he tells Timothy, uh, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Then he gets in, avoid other things, but just faithfully minister God's word. When you get into this topic of uh, studying God's word, reading God's word, as uh, the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1, or the Spirit through Paul, was just saying, let the word of Christ just dwell in you richly. Let it dominate, be filled with the knowledge of God's will. I was looking just uh, at some of the statistics. Just a couple of years ago, Lifeway did some stat studies on their churches. And they found that 45%, uh, 40%, excuse me, 40% of those that all the surveys went out to their regular attending people at their churches, 40% read the Bible once or twice a month. 40% of the surveys that came back, 40% of them, read the Bible once or twice a month. 20% said they never read it. So you have 60%. Well, 20, never read it. 40% read the Bible once or twice a month. And then 20% read the Bible every day. And then another 25% read it once a week. And you know what their slogan is? They're people of the book. Well, and I don't, I'm not picking on the SBC. I teach at an SBC adjunctly at Southern Seminary. I'm not picking on them. I don't, I don't think that's just a stat study of the SBC. I think that would be probably pretty close even across all denominational evangelicalism. Uh, you'll find that a lot. So then I went to social media looking at stats, the average amount of time for the adult on social media. The average adult per day is over two hours a day. That's social, that's not TV. That's social media. Average, two hours a day. Teenagers up to nine hours a day. When I looked at TV watching, the average adult watches five hours and four minutes. <laughs> uh, five hours a day. Two hours a day, social media, five hours on TV, the average adult. You say, well, th- those aren't Christian people. That's Christians are in the Word, and they're meditating on it day and night. 
Um, I don't think majority are. I mean, it's the question is, how much am I in the word? How much am I being under the dominating control of God's revealed will so that my decisions are, in the manner I walk, is everything is affected by the scripture. So it's a good reminder to us, this is what's kind of going on today. Um, we're not faithfully studying the scripture, thinking on it, pondering it, meditating on the word uh, into application as a habit. And I mean by that as a broad stroke in the church. I'm not talking about this church or any particular church, just the church at large. And I really want to just think about our own personal life. Where is it in my own life? How much time am I really spending in the Word? Am I properly studying it well? You remember again what uh, Packer wrote there, the wrong ideas about his guidance will lead to wrong conclusions about the right thing to do. And So decision-making is going to get even worse if we're not in the Word of God and under it. And this is, uh, I just took the five major uh, key things in the area of studying scripture, or called hermeneutics. And you all are, are, at least in this church and some surrounding churches, are taught well. But I just took this from Dr. MacArthur's book on how to get the most from God's word. It's a very uh, basic, major principles of how to study God's word well. So we're not looking for second donkeys or claiming... Uh, worship me and we'll all be yours today as a promise for Christians. You know, Just so we're not doing these kind of things with the scripture, but properly handling it well and honoring the Lord and faithfully following it. And so you have there the literal principle. Just what does the text say and mean? That's the literal principle. Now, there are different genres of scripture, and you have to be careful when you're getting into some prophetic literature or poetic literature. There's certain laws of interpretation in the different genres of Scripture. But overall, I mean, God gave us his word to communicate to us, not to hide things from us, but to communicate to us. This is his communication to his people. And we're very thankful God gave us uh, his word. So the literal principle, historical principle. Now we're looking, what did it mean to the, the original author, the human author, when God was moving them to write, what, what was in their mind? What did they know? What did they not know? And so now we're going back to the authorial intent and the relevance at that time to this person or that group of people, and not reading 2020 back into Scripture, not reading things back into sections of Scripture, but just letting God speak uh, using his word. Then you go to the grammatical principle. What do the very words say and mean? I remember one of the translations that I liked a lot was the Amplified Bible. As an early Christian, I liked that Bible. You know why? Because there's various meanings of the the words. Uh, So they'll have a, a verse and then they'll have uh, this particular word, and, the, and then it'll say, it could mean this, 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 and that. And I went, well, I like that fourth one. That's the one I like. Well, it may not mean that in that day and time 
in that text of Scripture. So the Amplified Bible, you have to be really careful there. What did the word mean at that time? For example, when I was in grade school, you know what the word gay meant? Happy. Well, have a joyful, happy time. Any of you who grew up watching the Flintstones, um, this is a gay time. Well, I remember when it changed, meaning. And I remember when my dad didn't know it changed. And he was preaching, and after he was done preaching, he said, now, after church day, we are going to have a picnic, and everyone's welcome to uh, go there, because we were going to have a one gay time. And it had changed meaning to homosexual behavior. And it he didn't know that, so we had to inform him. I was embarrassed with all my friends sitting there laughing. Um, so words change meaning over time. And so it's not just what does the word mean to us today or what does it what we like it to mean, but what did it mean then? And so it's going into the very words back then, the same did the same human author write it and does other texts of scriptures help us at the same time of writing? Uh, what does what's the verb? What's the subject? Who's talking? Who's saying, if you worship me, it will all be yours? I mean, just the context, all of that, you get into the grammatical principle, before and after verses, contextual. Then you have the synthesis principle, or sometimes called the correlational principle. We have one divine author. So what does all of Scripture teach us about this particular subject? And so if you're studying the Holy Spirit, you don't just study the Holy Spirit in a couple of chapters of Corinthians or in the book of Acts. What does all of the Bible teach us about the Holy Spirit? And so this is the synthesis principle of all of Scripture coming to bear on a particular text. And you can say, well, this is a lot of hard work. This takes time. It does. But this is how we study God's Word in order to know our God and be conformed into the likeness of Christ. And then you have the practical principle. This is the so what. After reading all of God's words, so what? It, it should go into practical application. God's word is practical. It's very relevant, inherently. This is implementation. This, it, this should be we hear God's word and now we do it. One of the, uh, this is a kind of an illustration of just the the various scriptures, the Old Testament was given, then the New Testament. You, you all know this, but it's a good reminder. And on the top of the canon, you have this uh, diagram, I think, in your notes. And then just accurate Bible study, bringing out what the scripture teaches, the literal, historical, grammatical, Christ, the, Christ should be seen at the end of all of our study, but not in every verse. Uh, he's not in every verse, but it, all of our studies should take us to Christ. And I appreciate Dr. Abner Chow and his work on uh, hermeneutics and uh, making sure we do end with Christ. If he's not in a particular verse, we do end with him. And then biblical theology, you're looking at themes in the Bible. You're looking at truths in their particular location, the categories. Then you have systematic, what does all of the scripture teach about certain major uh, doctrines? And then it needs to go to application, practical or applied theology. Uh, it is one of the quotes of um, Dr. John Frame. 
Some of you may know that name. He's written quite a bit as a, uh, a theologian. And this is what he says. Uh, he wrote this in his book, The Theological Captivity of Theology. He said, theology is a spiritual task. Theology is application. If it doesn't edify, it's worthless. It's not information for information's sake. It should never be a vehicle of intellectual pride. Sounds like Jesus' half-brother James. Hearing of the word doesn't equal change. It's hearing and doing the word, right? Be doers of the word, not hearers only. And so information by itself does not equal transformation. It's very important we have the word of God, but just hearing it, sitting underneath the spigot of God's word will not change you. You have to participate, prayerfully so, with the spirit of God who dwells within us as believers. And now, how do I practically apply that? And I'm just thrilled when I, when I see the ministries, not only the public, faithful preaching and teaching, but also the private and the emphasis on let's apply God's word to our life in every area of our life. That is, uh, you know what else Dr. Frame says? It's just a side note. You know where seminary training ought to be? According to Dr. Frame, who teaches in a seminary, who wrote that in his book on the theological, the, the captivity of theology. He says it belongs in the church. The seminaries belong in the church. Indeed, I mean, God has graced you all as you are a, one of the sites of the expositors. That's where you train men uh, for the work of the ministry. And it just, uh, it's a really good read if you haven't read that book. He's just saying that you get into the academy, and uh, a lot of people there in the academy don't know what church is going on in churches and don't know how best to help churches. It's people in churches who know what's going on in the church and how best to help and train. So, you know, he just uh, kind of a calling for a revival to bring training back. Um, now, this is Thomas Brooks, a Puritan pastor, who said it's better to hear one sermon only and meditate on it than to hear two sermons and meditate on neither. Now, what's better is have two sermons and meditate on both, right? But what what he's getting at is just hearing more without the intentional pondering the text into your life. How does my life change in, in relationship to what I just heard? What should I do? How does this change my life today? That's biblical meditation. One of the best books I've just recently read is David Saxton's book, God's Battle Plan for the Mind. Excellent book on meditation, biblical meditation. He pretty much quotes all the different Puritans on biblical meditation. The Westminster Confession of Faith, I think um, you're familiar with this one, um, where it says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, under which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. 
And you know, I mean, the, the early uh, Westminster divines, the pastors at that time, they were dealing with lots of mysticism. Lots of people saying they got this revelation and God told them this and God told them that in the Roman Catholic Church. And you know what's happening today? I'm in among evangelicals is they're loving to go back to Roman Catholic mysticism. And it's away from God's word. And these men at that time in the 1500s, 1600s, they were like, let's go back to scripture. That's what led to the Reformation. As they went back, what does the scripture say? J.C. Ryle, now he was uh, in the mid-1800s in England, right at the time the Keswick movement was being promoted of let go, let God. J.C. Ryle says, no, 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 you don't let go and let God. Uh, You cooperate with God. He will not obey for you. (laughs) you. You have to cooperate with the Spirit of God. And he wrote all of his sermons out, preached them, and you can read them in his book on holiness, about the first 180 pages of the book Holiness. But he says the Bible must be our standard. Whether we, uh, Whenever we are confronted with a question about Christian practice, we must apply the teaching of the Bible. Sometimes the Bible will deal with it directly, any decision we had to make. And we must go by its direct teaching. That would be a command. But often, the Bible will not deal with it directly, and then we must look for general principles to guide us. It does not matter what other people think. Their behavior is not a standard for us, but the Bible is a standard for us, and it is by the Bible that we must live. Now, let's take a look at some of the terms that you have. I think you have listed there. Uh, God's will, two aspects of God's will. Uh, two aspects of his will. The first one is his decretive will, often known as God's sovereign will. Verses like Ephesians 1.11. He works everything according to his will. Uh, everything is according to his will. Or Isaiah 46, that he declares the end from the beginning, everything in between. Uh, This is God's sovereign plan, and he is working everything according to his will. And it was, he decreed these things before time. He even decreed your salvation before creation. Ephesians 1. You're going, wow, how do you get to know that will? You don't ahead of time. That's, That's the mistake. I was on a hunt for what is his sovereign will on who to marry, or what was his sovereign will. You're not going to know that ahead of time. You don't know his decreed sovereign plan ahead of time unless it's in the Bible in the form of prophecy. We do know what's ahead for us as far as heaven and some of the the prophetic things of what's ahead, but not in everyday life of your life. You don't know that ahead of time, but God does. And everything is working perfectly. He's not missing B. He doesn't have an eraser on his pencil. Now, oh, I got, Stuart did that. Oh, I got to change. I thought, oh, he is sovereign and it's working absolutely perfect. He's in control. And aren't we thankful for that? Even when we watch the news. The news leaves out God's sovereignty. If you haven't, it actually leaves out God. So if you want to listen to the 10 spies every day, uh, just, Listen to the news. 
You've got to be a Joshua and Caleb and bring but God. God is over this country and the world and everything that's happening. And But how do we know God's decreed will? We don't ahead of time, but we do presently and looking backward. Because everything that's happened has been his sovereign decreed plan. Everything. It's from the Lord, from the Most High, that calamity and well-being come in Lamentations chapter 3. He, he, he is sovereign. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this on Sunday morning because it, it throws you. How does he use evil people? How does he use Satan? How, do, how did he use Joseph's evil brothers and, and working on... That's the Romans 8, 28 and 29. But he's sovereign over all of that. That's his decreed sovereign plan. And there's not plan A, B, C, D and triple Z for some of us. You go, oh boy, I, I, I know I did wrong there. I, I didn't obey scripture on that. Now I'm on another plan. Now I'm on another path. There's only one path for you. You've never missed God's decreed plan. You've never missed God's decreed plan. He's never had to change his plan for your life. You are smack dab in it. So I know it's his decreed will that you're here because you're here. Now what's going to happen five minutes from now? I don't, no one knows his decreed plan. But we trust God. Not just because he's sovereign. Sovereignty alone won't bring you comfort in difficult times. It's not only is he in control, he's perfectly good. He's perfectly wise. He's perfectly compassionate. He's perfectly merciful. And 30 other attributes of God. That's what comforts us. He is not only in control, but he is all wise and good and merciful and compassionate and loving. That's his sovereign plan. And you know how he works it out? Providence. Providence is the secret working of his decreed plan. He's using people and circumstances to make sure what he has decreed is going to happen. Now you go, wow. Uh, then we're just robots. No. In his sovereign plan, he created us with a limited will. Not a totally free will. If we're totally free will, then he's not sovereign. It's a limited will. It's limited to our nature. It's limited to our circumstances. It's limited to God's sovereignty. And he holds us responsible for our choices. We have a limited will. But providence is how he secretly moves circumstances and people to make sure his plan is carried out. Declared the end from the beginning and everything in between, it will operate and be what he has planned for his glory and our eternal good. Now, I'm thankful we can trust him on that one. Now, the aspect of God's will is the second one that we're to know and to follow. Can't know the the decree of sovereign will ahead of time. This is the will. This is the second aspect of his one will. This is his uh, revealed will, sometimes called his moral will. This is scripture. This is the will that he has given his people. In different stages, it was complete and sufficient for that time. The Old Testament was sufficient for them. Whenever he gave more revelation, it was sufficient for that time. And then revelation was ceased at the 
end of the book of Revelation. And now it is totally sufficient for his people until he returns. Christ returns. This is the will that we must do. He holds us responsible to know it, to study it, uh, to, to live in accordance with it. He's not holding us responsible for his decreed will. He's holding us responsible to know and study and follow his revealed will. This is what should permeate our minds day and night. This is the will. That was, was talking, I read those passages, do his will, do his will. It's God's word. That's that, uh, his will there. So that's a preceptive will. Uh, and we find his will revealed to his children in commands and principles. Commands and principles. And you, you, when I read J.C. Ryle, he was talking about that. Sometimes he speaks directly to you. You don't vote on it. It's yes or no. It's a, it's a command. Other times it's principles. Principles are like a compass. So if I want to get back to California, guess what direction I need to go in? West. If I'm going to go back to California, I need to go west. Well, if I was driving, well, which road do you take? Which one would you like to take? One might get you there faster. One might be more scenic. That's wisdom. That's principle living. Just go west. It gives you enough guidance. Generally speaking, go west. But you have freedom in the principles. Does that make sense? A, a command, there's no freedom there. You must. When it's a command and an imperative, you must do that. But principles are more of a compass. And I, I, I'm a, when I look at some of the books on decision-making, I see them go, well, God commands things, and if he doesn't command things, do whatever you want. You go, whoa, wait a minute. There's not just commands. There are principles. Principles that kind of give you some direction to please the Lord and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So it's commands and principles for God's children. This is a way I've tried to illustrate. Every illustration can break down. I'm sure some of you would go, well, what about, what about? Uh, I just tried to illustrate a kind of a visual thinker. If, if God's re, uh, decreed will is the blue, everything in the blue is God's decreed plan, past, present, and future. Uh, no one lives outside the blue. Nothing happens outside that blue. That's his decreed plan I mean for, for human beings. In that will, he has his revealed will. And he gives that to us through commands, which are non-negotiable, and principles, which just gives us purposeful freedom. It kind of gives us some direction with freedom. When I was did not want Christ at all, I was trying to live all my life in the blue. But when God saves you, then you're trying to live there in the middle. You're you're trying to live with his commands and principles as much as possible, walking by faith according to his commands and principles. No one lives perfectly in the middle except Jesus when he was here on earth. 
But what he wants to do is he wants to tighten our walk. So as we mature as a Christian, as we're growing in Christ, I'm not out looking for tree limbs at what to do the next day. I'm not, he's growing us. That what does the scripture say? It's just what Jesus, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? Back to the, what does the Bible say? Are there any principles that would guide me in this decision? And you just tighten our walk more and more according to truth. And you are very blessed, I mean, to have the leadership you have, to have faithful ministry of God's word, both teaching in the private, Mark, and the, the counseling, but just all of the, the emphasis on, on God's word and handling it correctly. You're blessed. And a lot of you know you're blessed because you've been to other churches and said, wow, that's... I mean, one, one of you just told me years and all over the place in different churches, but now in this church is just here, the word of God is open, faithfully exposited and applied. Praise God. Pray for your leaders. And uh, other churches like it uh, as they're part of the expositors. But tightening our walk. Lord, help me to tighten my walk. And it won't happen if I'm hours and hours on social media and TV watching. I'm not on any campaign against the cell phone or social media or a TV. But the amount of time and what little time may be given to reading and studying God's word, that needs to change. If, if you know, in your life you're going, boy, it's hours, but minutes in the Bible, change that so that our walk tightens up, knowing God's word and doing it. Now, there are other words. Uh, wisdom is another word that you'll find in decision-making. It's in the Old Testament. I mean, it's just wisdom. Wisdom is typically knowledge, and when we're talking about scripture, like scriptural knowledge applied to a moral end, uh, to a God-honoring end. You want I mean, a wise Hebrew uh, would be someone who knew the law and sought to live it. The Greek model, just add degrees after your name and you don't have to live a thing. You could be on your eighth marriage and give, be a marriage counselor. But wisdom living is taking God's word and applying it to our life. And the Spirit of God helps us to understand and the power to implement it but he will not obey for us. We must cooperate with the Spirit. So wisdom. We want to grow in wisdom. A lot of wisdom principles in Scripture. Then we deal with mysticism. You say, well, what is mysticism? And this was going on in the book of Colossians. Uh, they were using uh, key words, light, darkness, uh, these, this Greek philosophy, early forms of Gnosticism, early on in the first century. But they would have these key words, buzzword, knowledge was a big word. And, but they would pack it fill, full with more philosophy, intuition, not Bible knowledge. So they had different meanings for the words. But what is mysticism? One professor from a Westminster Seminary years ago, R.B. Kuyper, uh, most concise Definition of mysticism. It's the, the essence of mysticism is to separate 
the operation of the Holy Spirit from God's objective word. You've taken the Holy Spirit and said, let's close the Bible, now the Spirit's over here. Now you have, quote, God's word, not the word of God, but God's word. You start taking the Spirit away from his word. He inspired this. He's the one who gave us this. He's the one who's preserved this over all these centuries. He's the one who wants to use his word. But you separate the Holy Spirit from his, his written word, the revealed will. Then you move into subjectivity, into mysticism, a false pseudo-spirituality. And people talk, real spiritual talk, but it's not grounded from Scripture. And it's popular today. John MacArthur writes, mysticism is the idea that direct knowledge of God or ultimate reality is achieved through personal subjective intuition, there it is, or experience, apart from, or even contrary to, historical fact or objective divine revelation or the word of God. So the same kind of thing. It's They're talking all about the Holy Spirit, working of the Holy Spirit, but it's apart from the Word of God. But it's, uh, there's a few other uh, quotes that I found. Some of you may have read uh, some of these books. Uh, this is a very helpful book uh, called True Devotion, A Search of Authentic Spirituality. Uh, Dr. Alan Chapel, he teaches at Trinity Seminary down in Australia, in Perth. And he writes here, uh, how to live the Christian life, he says, for that we go to the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. And when we do, we discover that we are to rely upon the Spirit, not for whispers, but for wisdom. What he gives us is not new revelation, but fresh Illumination, not additional words from God, but greater insight into the word God has already spoken. But a very helpful uh, read on what is true spirituality today. This is uh, Henry Scudder, uh, who wrote um, kind of Puritan uh, work, or let's He's late in the, the Puritan era, more up around Edwards. Um, but he wrote, wrote a lot about taking God's word and then applying it. And he says this about mysticism. He says, in seeking to know the secrets and mysteries of God and godliness, you must not pry into them further than God hath revealed. For if you wade therein further than you have sure footing in his holy word, you will presently lose yourself and be swallowed up in a maze and whirlpool of errors and heresies. See, here's the thing. If you go, well, I thought God impressed. I thought God put it on my mind. Just say you had a thought. I had a thought last night. Don't put God's name on it unless it's properly handled and it's right out of Scripture. Just, I had a thought last night. You know what? I had an impression today but don't say, God gave me this. Um, And so I have to do whatever I'm impressed to do. 
I just had an impression. Now I need to follow God's commands and principles on what to do with the impression. I need to follow God's commands and principles on how to deal with the thought that I just had. And that will help guide you. And you go, well, you know, um, there's, and we're going to look at more tomorrow on how does this flesh out? How do, how do you then use God's word, commands, and principles in decision-making? I'll even go down and use an illustration tomorrow on should we buy a pet? And how do you, how do you make up that? And some of you are already not even open to God's will on certain animals. <laughs> yeah. So, but just say I had a thought, I had an impression. Because here's the thing. You cannot prove it's from God. Once you leave the Bible, you cannot prove it's from God. Number two, you, there's no safeguard from error. That's exactly what Scudder is talking about. You leave the Bible, and now you have no sure footing. Now you can get into a maze, he said. He called it a maze, a whirlpool of errors and heresies. It just takes a look, I mean, just a little off. You go, well, I just think and I just feel and I just, you start moving that way and you're not, scripture keeps us grounded and, and solid on sure footing. Very, very helpful. Now you have experience as well. Uh, experience. Uh, and to that, uh, let's, let's go to Second Peter. This is probably one of my favorite passages to go to. When I, I talk to someone and I tell them, uh, I'm meeting with them privately and I'll just say, you know, we're gonna, uh, the, the Bible is gonna be our authority. Uh, absolute authority. And, and helping you and working through the issues and what does God say, uh, what's right, what's wrong, how to make it right. God's word's profitable for instruction, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We're going to God's word. And when they say to me, yes, but, but I've experienced. I had this experience. As soon as they come in with that, or God appeared to me, or um, I had this vision, or I mean, all these things are being talked about today. When they come in with that, I often will say, you know what? I'm not going to argue your experience. Well, I mean... They said, well, I had this experience. Uh, the Lord showed up in a dream. No, he didn't. Well, yes, he did. No, he didn't. I mean, it's a fruit, fruitless kind of argument. You, you're not going to win that one. They experience something, and sometimes they'll say, you know, God impressed on me to witness to somebody. Well, he doesn't impress on you. He commanded us to witness to people, uh, to all of us, all right? Go make disciples. They go, you know, and I went to this person and, and witnessed, and they said, you know, I've been praying, and, and God just let me. Well, have you ever had that impression and you went to people and they said, get out of my face? Yeah, lots of times. Okay, you, you don't ever talk about all the wrong things, but we don't need some impression to go witness to people. We don't need impressions to do what God's told us to do. Right? I don't need an impression to encourage you. I'm, I have 35 one another's to do uh, towards you and we have towards each other. I don't need impressions I already have commands to do those. And I just need to be faithful to do those. But rather than argue against someone's experience, this is a better passage actually to take them to, to show them Peter had an experience. 
Actually, he had quite a few of them. But here he is in 2 Peter 1, which is all... 2 Peter 1 is a key chapter on Scripture in our lives. I mean, the whole chapter is talking about the importance of knowing Christ through his word. And he says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, this is experiences. I've not had this. No one in here has had this kind of eyewitness experience of the Lord Jesus in human form. Fully God, fully man. He did. And in verse 17, he says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, just back up a minute and think about that experience. Peter is saying, I saw Jesus. I was right with him. And I was one of those inner three of the disciples. I saw Jesus light up. I, I mean, the, the Shekinah glory. I, I, I saw him light up. And at the same time, I heard a, the, God the Father speak that this was his son, in whom he's well placed. There you go. There's some experiences. What he says next to the hearers that he's writing to, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word. What, what's the next few words? More fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if a person says, I've had these experiences... I want to tell them, let's go to something more sure. The word. This is more sure. This is verse 19. This is more fully confirmed. Peter is saying that after he talks about his experiences. This is more confirmed. This is more sure. You're moving from thin ice, if there even was any ice, to rock. So I'm, I'm not going to argue with your experiences. I'm just going to say, let's go to the scripture. What does the scripture say? This is going to be our bedrock. This, this is where we take people. It's where we want. If a person says to me, I don't want to go there. My experience is uh, the most authoritative in my life. That's what Carl Rogers said, by the way. Remember him in Rogerian Counseling. Uh, he, he's, uh, you can... Look this up if you want. I mean, he quotes, experience is the most important thing. He even says experience is authoritative more than scripture. But that's kind of where we're at in our culture. I just want to try to lead them. Let's go to something more sure. I don't want to argue with you with your experiences. I want to take you to what is firm and sure, the word of God. And how we make our decisions in our life and how we evaluate things. So even in uh, tonight, 
Just a thought. Are you facing a decision, or maybe more decisions, maybe there's a number of them, right now that you need to put more time and effort into examining what the Word of God says before you move ahead? Maybe you were just going to, you know what, we got a decision to make, I'm just going to make it. Well, is there, I mean, weightier decisions that I really need to slow down a little and think and ponder? I need to see what the scripture says about the decision I'm facing and not just think, I'm sure he doesn't talk about it. But there's principles that will help guide you. Secondly, have you made a major decision lately that you need to reevaluate? Now, this wouldn't include marriage. This is not the time to reevaluate when it's marriage. You're one flesh, now live in light of God's word. But I mean, other decisions that you've made, do you need to maybe reevaluate in light of God's word? Sometimes I talk to students who have overcommitted themselves. They're taking way too many classes. They've committed themselves to too many things at church. At least they are committed at church and serving, but overcommitted, saying yes to everything. And now they have to reevaluate and say, Not that I just stop everything right now, but next semester is going to look differently. So there's a time. There's a sort of a book of Acts transition. There's there's a time of, all right, next semester, I'm going to take this much and I'm going to pull back from here. I'm going to keep serving in this area because other things are being unfaithful in my life. So maybe there's some decisions that uh, the Lord is bringing to your mind in his providence. You're going, hmm, I may need to rethink some things I've done, or maybe there's some decisions that I really need to get and think and pray and examine what scripture says. And some of you are going, I'm not sure how to make decisions. I'm not going to make any decisions until tomorrow. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> you have to leave tonight. Uh, go home. <laughs> But tomorrow morning, this is where I want us to go. Tomorrow morning, I want to look at about 20 ways that are popular. Some of them you should not use in your decision-making. Other ways you should not rely on these. You have to use some of the, the components, but don't rely on them. You want to rely on commands and principles. But how to use some other things in your life. So the first session tomorrow will be on how not to make decisions biblically, just looking at the scriptures. And then uh, the one right after that will be, so how do we, according to scripture, how do we study scripture to find the commands and principles and a process? Uh, It's not complicated. It's challenging, but it's not complicated. You don't need a PhD in decision making. It's not complicated. It's challenging. It takes work to study God's word, to prayerfully meditate on it into our life. And the Holy Spirit's there the whole way. It's his word. He wants us to be more like Jesus. He wants us more than we want to walk, for us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing him in every respect. Amen? Well, let me close in prayer, and then I will let you go. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for 
uh, my brothers and sisters who have uh, come together just to continually learn and to grow. And Lord, I, I don't know that we can study this topic without realizing that there have been decisions that we have ignored your word. We have maybe just willfully disobeyed your word. And for that, we are deeply uh, sorrowful, uh, grieved over what we've done. And we've reaped consequences uh, from sinful choices, sometimes foolish choices. But thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace. Lord, thank you that you are quick uh, to forgive we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You, you are long-suffering with us. and You are patient with us. We just thank you for your love that's constant, it doesn't change. And Lord, thank you that your spirit, of, spirit lives within us and is in us both to will and to do your good pleasure, to help us to know the word understand the word, to meditate on it into application so that we can become more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.